It was dark. It was dark in that deserted Appalachian mountain town. Not late, just wintertime dark. It should have been cold, but warm weather was hanging on. Indian summer, that's what my adoptive father used to call it. He died in 2000, over 20 years ago. Strange of me to think of him now, but memories are always strange. Wind was blowing the last autumn leaves across the brick sidewalk, but the air felt almost hot on my face. And I was alone. Alone when it found me. Something I could not believe was real. I didn't look back, not at first. I was, I was too afraid to look, you know what I mean? Maybe afraid is the wrong word. Yeah, not afraid. Unable, unwilling. I was unwilling to admit what I was feeling was real. So I just kept walking, moving down the small main street and praying that I would find the address written on the scrap of paper I had clutched in my hand. 13B North Market Street. But every door was shut and all the lights were out and I couldn't find 13B to save my soul. That noise, that howl, it sounded like, it sounded like the last thing you hear before you're taken. It was as if the end of everything was right behind me. So I decided I'd better quit walking and start running. Without looking back, I just ran. But it wasn't behind me, not anymore. I didn't get a good look, it was so dark, but when the lightning, I thought it was in front of me. Head low, mouth open, black fur standing on the ridge of its back, rippling as waves of rage danced under its skin. I knew it was here to take me. I was gonna die. But then the sky just opened up and I heard a voice. In here, it said. I looked over and saw an arm outstretched from an open shop door. I could have sworn that moments ago there was nothing there but some crumbling brick facade, but I was so freaked out by the thing chasing me through the dark that I decided to take my chances. I've always been a bit of a gambler. So I grabbed a hold of the stranger's hand, intertwined my fingers in theirs, and hoped for the best. This is Moonshine Land, a story of haunted Appalachia. Based on Horace Kephart's true account of moonshine murder and mountain mayhem, our Southern Highlanders, and Madeline Vinton Dahlgren's classic description of the Appalachian occult, South Mountain Magic, Moonshine Land is the story of my attempt to discover the truth behind a Prohibition-era manhunt for a fugitive moonshiner. But instead of uncovering the story of a human criminal, I found evidence of an ancient Appalachian evil that has been hiding in the hills for centuries. And this ancient evil was not happy to have been disturbed. Listen on if you dare. Episode 1, The Arrival of the Snake Stick Man. As I stumbled through the door, I was just able to make out the address written above the shop entrance. 13B North Market Street. But that was impossible. I had been running for a long time. I had taken a lot of random turns down random streets and was pretty sure I wasn't even on market anymore when the hand appeared and helped me inside. 
I looked at the man standing in front of me, the owner of the hand that had pulled me in. He was old, long hair and a gray beard that reached all the way down the front of his faded flannel shirt. As I stared at him, I realized I was shaking and I tried unsuccessfully to stop myself. I wondered if it was the cold rain on this otherwise warm day that was giving me the shivers. The man moved past me and locked the door. He peered out through the glass into the storm. I, I wasn't sure, but he looked like he might be afraid. Not as freaked out as me, a stranger in a strange town, shivering from shock and thinking I might have just hallucinated some sort of, of, well, I don't even know what, but, but still, a little afraid. Maybe he was looking for what had chased me here? But that couldn't be. What I saw wasn't real. It was my mind playing tricks. It had to be. Then I realized he was waiting for flashes of lightning and counting silently to himself until the thunderclap rolled over the hills. One, two, three, he murmured under his breath. Are you the bookseller? I asked him. He didn't verbally respond to my question, just nodded slowly, still staring out the window and silently counting the seconds between the lightning and the thunder. Getting closer, he whispered. I didn't understand. He wasn't making a lot of sense. None of this was making a lot of sense. What is, I asked, what is getting closer? Again, the bookseller did not respond to my question or to me. It was almost like he didn't even see me there, which was starting to piss me off. So I raised my voice. Why did you let me in here? And just like that, the bookseller turned, brushed past me again and went to the counter. He had an old fashioned cash register, the, the metal kind with a bell that rings when you punch in the prices. It must have been antique. As a matter of fact, everything in the low ceilings shop looked at least 100 years old. Even the air smelled ancient. Anyway, there was a book sitting by the register. He picked it up and extended it toward me. This is it, isn't it? He said. I looked at the manuscript in his hand, but did not immediately recognize it. This is what? I asked. The book. The book you were interested in. He was looking straight at me, face more animated than before. No question about whether or not he saw me now. Your name is Armandine, yes? He continued. You're the woman who contacted me. He was right. I... I don't know how he could be so sure who I was, but yes, I was named Armandine, and I had called a few weeks ago and contacted him about a book. I just wasn't sure that it was this book, the one he was holding. I should probably stop here and tell you a little bit about me and why I was here in this tiny Appalachian town in the first place. I'm a reporter. I work for one of the last small town papers left in the Eastern Mountains, and we were doing a puff piece on famous residents of the local area. The story was hopefully going to create public interest, attract tourism, boost the local economy. However, not many current mountain natives were well known or known at all, really. So the story was beginning to focus more on former residents than current ones. My research had turned me on to an author that lived in the mountains back in the 1920s. Further research had uncovered something strange about this author's life, his work, and his death. Something about a lost manuscript, illegal activity and even possibly murder. My editor wasn't interested. My hundred-year-old hunch, as he put it, didn't paint the locals in a positive light. So he told me to drop it and stick to the softer human interest angle. But you'll figure this out about me sooner or later, so I'll just tell you now. I'm hard-headed, and especially when I've already made up my mind, which in this case I had. So despite what my editor wanted, I started searching for this author's lost manuscript, even though I was reasonably sure my editor was right and it probably didn't even exist. Still, I ran down a lead that brought me here to this little bookshop deep in the mountains and put me across the room from this strange old bookseller 
Anyway, I took the book out of his hand, I looked it over, and then I asked what felt to me like a way more pressing question than anything to do with antique literature. Why did you lock the door behind me? He didn't answer, just pointed at the book I now held. That's the one, he said, the rare second edition pulled by the publisher in 1922. The one you asked about, the lost edition. It wasn't a question. The bookseller was sure he had spoken to me and that this was the book I had asked him about. But none of that made sense. Things felt wrong somehow. The location of the shop, or rather my inability to locate the shop, the, the thing that I thought I had seen outside. I decided to confront him. I've been looking for your shop all day, but I couldn't find it. I looked up the address on Google Maps, Waze, Yelp, everything, no luck. I even drove to the next two towns and tried to find their 13B North Market Streets in case I copied down the wrong address, but still nothing. So I drive back here to this town and then I'm walking all over this afternoon up and down North Market and I can't find 13B any place. But as soon as a storm rolls in and that stray dog, weren't no stray dog, the bookseller interrupted. I decided to ignore that last statement and kept talking. As soon as whatever it was that scared me, when I start running, I mean, I'm not even on the right street anymore, but you reach out from nowhere and pull me in here, a place I didn't even see before, and it's 13B North Market? How is that even possible? Again, he just sort of looked at me before nodding slowly and going back to the door. As he turned, I could hear him say something quietly. I think he said, my shop's here when you need it. He was counting the seconds between the lightning and thunder again. There wasn't much time between anymore. Storm's on top of us now, he said. Better wait it out here. You can read that book while the weather passes. I'm not sure that's such a good idea, I said. The bookseller took a deep breath. It explains it, he said. I was lost. Explains what? He smiled at me for the first time. And only then did I realize how frightening he was when he wasn't smiling. He wasn't menacing, not on purpose anyway, but he was frightening. The man looked like eternity. Like you could fall into him the way light falls into a black hole and just keeps falling forever until eventually your atoms pulled apart from each other and you weren't anything anymore. His face was stone serious when he spoke the following words to me. It explains what chased you here what is waiting outside the door for you if you leave. Now, I know what you're thinking. I was thinking it too. But for some reason, a reason I still cannot fully explain, I didn't leave. Instead, I took the book out of his hand and sat down on an old couch in the front of the store. The couch faced the big front window in an old TV set. It was the kind of setup mountain shops used to have back in the day when neighbors would head down to the general store to have a drink of shine and watch the one television in town together. The book cover was faded, but the title was clear enough. Our Southern Highlanders, a narrative of adventure in the Southern Appalachians and a study of life among the mountaineers. I opened the cover and read the handwritten notes at the top of the first page. What follows are the events true to a word that my publisher refused to allow in the manuscript on account of them being considered too fantastical to be believed and of a superstitious and satanic nature, obviously untrue and unfit for publication. But what follows is most definitely true. 
I saw it with my own eyes. The note was signed Horace Keppart. That was the name of the author I was researching. Well, go on then, the bookseller encouraged me. Read it. This is what you were looking for, wasn't it? It was. It was exactly what I had been looking for. The rumored lost manuscript for our Southern Highlanders, a book about Appalachian culture Kephart had written in the 1920s. The official version contains stories about moonshiners and the lawmen that hunted them. It is widely available since it has passed into the public domain, and you can Google it and you can download a free PDF. It's, it's that easy. But I wasn't looking for the official version, the one that contained prose sanitized by editors and publishers. I was looking for the lost edition, the one that was rumored to contain first-hand accounts of supernatural activity in the Appalachian Mountains. However, a big part of me never believed the lost second edition existed. Like the black-haired thing that had chased me into the bookseller's shop, Kephart's lost manuscript was something I wondered about but didn't really believe actually existed. Yet it does, said the bookseller, answering my unasked question like he could read my mind. I shook off the dread I was feeling, turned the page, and against my better judgment, started to read the lost manuscript. The first page began. Chapter One. White Lightning, Black Magic. When I was a child, my mother told me, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, God will smile on you and you will be saved. I was little then and did not understand. So I asked her, what does God want me to have faith in? She just laughed and said, you are a different sort of child, ain't you, Horace? Well, I never did have much faith, but I wanted to. So I did my best to believe when I could. I believed in love and it broke my heart. And I believed in what the Bible taught me, that there is evil out there in the darkness. And that very nearly cost me my soul. You must know, dear reader, I've always been a wanderer. If I had a bedroll, a hatchet, some cartridges, and a gun, I found I could go most anywhere, do most anything I needed, and everything I wanted. Life in the wild was all I ever desired until, after one lonely night too many huddled alone in the dark, I took a few years off from my mountain travels to finish my education, marry a woman, and father a child. There are precious few things in this life they cannot take away from you. An education is one, but a family is not. Mine left me not long after my 30th birthday, and so to wandering in the Appalachian wilderness I returned. I came finally to live in Bryson City, the county seat of the same county in which I had first appeared as a resident of the mountains. To call it a city is to overstate things a bit. A stretch of dirt road, a general store, and a hotel that was in truth more a bar room in which drunk men slept was all that separated Bryson City from the hills and hollers that surrounded it. The land itself was overrun with moonshine and the folk who made it. A self-reliant group, they were good with a rifle and master hunters of animals and sometimes men. I found myself drawn to these rugged mountain people who brewed white lightning in the woods and outran revenue men on treacherous mountain roads. It was along in October of 1922, I believe. 
that a sturdy, dark-haired stranger came to the old hotel where I lived and was introduced to the landlord, a young woman called Rose, by the Indian agent from Lufty, who had brought him over in his car. I remember the time of year because the trees had mostly lost their leaves, but the weather was oddly hot. Indian summer, I think they say. That's what my father used to call it anyhow. The Indian agent was thoroughly rattled from the drive over, having almost lost control of the car at the hairpin turn at the end of Grayson's Gap, just outside town. But as for the stranger, he was not rattled at all. As a matter of fact, he was, if anything, unnervingly sanguine. He wore a big cowboy hat, Lucchese boots, and two Luger semi-auto pistols and shoulder holsters under his black oilskin coat. He was obviously not from around here. Everyone assumed from his bearing and dress that he must be from the West. And even though he wore his guns under his coat, it was obvious to every mountain man and woman that he wanted it known that he was carrying. But the thing that caused the most stir as he sauntered into the saloon where I sat reading, more than his strange dress and German pistols, was his walking stick. Made from a gnarled oak branch, it was as tall as he was. Over six foot, a hand-carved serpent wrapped around the length of it, a real snake's rattle near the bottom that vibrated with each step, and a carved mouth, open, fangs extended in an unending hiss at the top, next to the stranger's head. And I swear to you, as the stranger stood in the doorway, backlit by the sun, the serpent on his walking stick moved. It turned its head and stole a glance at me. I looked around the room at the other men inside to see if they had caught sight of the strange and miraculous incident, but none of the mountaineers, clad in their faded denim overalls, chewing their tobacco and drinking their illicit spirits, seemed to have noticed anything strange about the wooden snake. They only had eyes for the man who carried it, and they did not like the stranger much. They liked him even less when he opened his mouth and spoke. I am looking for Buck Ruff, he said, and I know... Despite your inevitable prostinations to the contrary, all of you could tell me where he's hiding, and that before sun sets tonight, one of you will. Now, Buck Ruff was a notorious local moonshiner. He, his brother, and their daddy had been making shine and running it across state lines for years without any real trouble from the revenue men. The law had only come down on them when they started smuggling it across the Koala boundary, into the nearby Cherokee Reservation. Apparently, the federal government felt it was the only organization that should be allowed to interfere with the sovereign Cherokee Nation and took offense at the Ruff family muscling in on what had been, up until that point, a strictly federal racket. So Buck had been arrested by a federal marshal and locked up in the local jailhouse. But old Buck didn't cotton to that prison cell at all. So the night they locked him up, and this is true, mind you, he ripped the metal bed frame in his cell apart, used a piece of it to knock a hole in the brick wall, tore and tied his bedclothes into a rope, and climbed down from his second-story cell to the ground below. And as you can imagine, this created quite a ruckus, and the marshal that had arrested old Buck was waiting for him when his feet touched Mother Earth. But Buck didn't let that stop him. He snapped that marshal's neck with his bare hands like a child snapping a twig, and took off into the night. There was outrage next morning amongst the federal lawmen and a huge manhunt was organized, but to no avail. They must have sent a hundred men into those hills and two hundred dogs. 
but every bloodhound they sent out to hunt Buck down either turned coward and run home, or met with a violent end. But nobody ever saw what killed those dogs. Not a one. And there had been dozens torn apart. Some say it was bear or coyotes or panthers that did it. But again, there were dozens of mutilated hounds, but not a single wild animal was sighted during the entire manhunt. It was as if all the predators of the mountains had hid away, like they were as afraid of whatever was lurking up there as the bloodhounds were. After a week's time, enthusiasm and resources for the search dwindled. Most of the marshals went home, and Buck Ruff was lost to the hollers and hills. Buck had been on the run for the better part of two years now. The law had no luck catching up with him, and appeared unable ever to do so. A fact, it now appeared, that this stranger dressed in black with the Luger pistols tucked under his arms and the sinister snake stick in his right hand was about to try and change. A big man in the back of the room, I think his name was Hall, stepped forward, wiped tobacco spit from his beard and looked the stranger in the doorway up and down. Who wants to know where old Buck Ruff be hiding? He growled. I do, said the stranger in the doorway, and I'd appreciate it if you'd tell me quickly. I'm a busy man of work, not a day-drinking man of leisure as you appear to be. Well, I'm not sure if Hall knew exactly what a man of leisure was, or that he had just been insulted. But one thing he knew for sure, he did not lack the stranger one goddamn bit. You faster than pistols, snake stick man, he asked. The snake stick man nodded. Hall hitched his own gun belt up around his waist and spat more tobacco juice. Let's see how fast, he said. Not in my place, Rose, a local hotelier and owner of this fine establishment, yelled from behind the bar. You two want to act foolish? You act foolish outside, she commanded. And so they did. We gathered outside the hotel anxiously awaiting the commencement of the quick-draw competition between the large mountain man named Hall and the stranger dressed in black, the snake-stick man. Hall squared off on his side of the street and waited impatiently as the snake-stick man took his time getting ready, checking the rounds in his pistols and adjusting his holsters. Finally, Hall lost his patience and hollered to the snake-stick man, Hellfire! For a busy feller in a hurry, you sure dally! Are you a man and we goddamn gonna do this now? Or are you a yellow coward and we are not? But the snake stick man still seemed to be in no rush. He stood there, leaning against his serpentine walking stick. He cocked his head, listening for something we could not hear. All in good time, all in good time, was his only response. And that enraged Hall even further. As we waited for the trouble to begin in earnest, my friend Glenn Owl sidled up to me. Glenn was tall and tan, a Cherokee born and raised behind the koala boundary. He had two deep scars on each palm, stretching from his fingertips to his wrists, that he had earned across the sea somewhere in the trenches of that European cataclysm. You see, when the Great War commenced, Glenn had immediately volunteered. He was sent across the ocean and conducted himself well in that savage spasm of violence. On one particularly grim day, the Huns made a charge across no man's land and came into Glenn's trench at the precise time he and his best wartime friend, a young local of French extraction named Philippe, had run out of ammunition. 
as a large hun drove his bayonet home toward Philippe's heart. Glenn grabbed the blade with his bare hands, ignored the pain and blood as it filleted his skin, pulled the rifle out of the hun's grip, and proceeded to beat the exasperated German to death with it. Philippe was so grateful that he subsequently introduced Glenn to his younger sister, which is how my Cherokee friend came to return home to the Appalachian Mountains with two large scars, one small French wife, and a tiny toddler son. The story of how Glenn caught the German bayonet and caught up with the French woman gave rise to Glenn's nickname, Catch, which was better known to everyone in Bryson City than his true name ever was. When I first came to Bryson City, I was regarded as a stranger, an outlander. Ketch and his family were the only friends I had made for some months. I shared many meals at his table and enjoyed his family's company for a long time before I truly felt accepted here. My time in Ketch's home allowed me to forget, for a moment at least, the searing loneliness I had felt ever since my wife and child left me. Although, when I saw Ketch with his son and saw how much they loved each other and enjoyed each other's company, a different kind of loneliness struck me. It was hard to see a man so in love with his family be able to spend time with them when I was not. Even so, the love Ketch had for his wife and son warmed my heart and gave me hope for the world. Anyway, as I said, Ketch sidled up next to me, his little son in tow, and asked what was going on. As I explained the situation to him, a strange thing happened. Hall was getting so impatient that he was preparing to draw down on the snake stick man despite the stranger's direction to wait when we all finally heard what the snake stick man had been listening for all along. A mountain rattler slithered out from the brush on the side of the road and headed straight toward the snake stick man. The hell is this? Hall mumbled, but he lowered his gun anyway. The mountain rattler coiled itself up inches from the snake stick man and prepared to strike. Far from showing signs of fear, the snake stick man looked calm. He stared into the rattlesnake's eyes with an expression not unlike a lover's unspoken request and did not move except to set down his walking stick and crack his knuckles. By God, Howell yelled, his rage at the dark stranger completely transformed into concern. Young serpent will make a corpse of you, man! Get you away! Ketch and his son were similarly entranced by the dramatic showdown between man and beast, especially the boy. And then, just as we were all sure it would, the snake struck out. But, with God as my witness, as the snake opened its jaw and lunged, fangs dripping with black blood poison, only inches away from the stranger's flesh, it was blown to bits by his Luger pistols, which cleared leather, took aim at hip level, and fired with a speed and accuracy I not only had never seen in all my travels in all my days, but that I did not believe possible. As a matter of fact, had I not seen the snake stick man's skill with the weapons myself, I would never have believed it to be within the realm of physical possibility. Needless to say, Hall, having witnessed this display of firearm proficiency as well as the snake-stick man's apparent ability to commune with serpents, decided a duel was unnecessary at best and suicidal at worst. Hall shook his head and raised his hands in surrender as the snake-stick man holstered his pistols. The snake-stick man waved his hand in acknowledgement of Hall's capitulation and Hall visibly relaxed. 
He approached the snakestick man and mumbled something under his breath. What was that, friend? The snakestick man asked. The Sugarlands, Hall repeated. They say Buck and maybe his kin too are hid out in the Sugarlands. The snakestick man nodded in thanks and stooped to retrieve his walking stick. The small crowd that had gathered to watch the showdown between Howell and the stranger had already dispersed, save Ketch, his boy, and myself, who had for some unspoken reason all three decided to hang back, so no one but us witnessed the following event. As we finally turned to go back into the hotel, Ketch's son grabbed his father's hands and pointed back at the snakestick man who was crouched down low. He held the walking stick in one hand and waved his other over the deceased mountain rattler. Look, Papa, the child exclaimed. I hesitate to relate to you the following, as I fear you may find it blasphemous. But it cannot be blasphemy to write the truth, can it? If you believe it is, I suggest you read no further. Now, as the snakestick man waved his left hand, the carved walking stick in his right transformed into a moving, breathing serpent, just like the rod of Moses did in the book of Exodus. It dropped to the ground coiled itself around the broken body of the mountain rattler and hissed. And, as the snakestick man's serpent uncoiled itself from the body of the dead mountain rattler, the formerly deceased serpent returned to life and slithered away into the brush. And as it did, the walking stick returned to the stranger's hand, stretched out and straight, and became carved wood again. Once its transformation to an inert form was complete, the snakestick man stood up, looked us dead in the eyes, and smiled. Did you see that catch? Miraculous, I exclaimed. Eh, nothing but a cheap magic trick, Catch retorted. Catch had seen many a charlatan gypsy's magic show while he was in Europe, and his wartime experiences had turned him into an avowed atheist besides. I, on the other hand, was searching these mountains for answers to big questions, and thought perhaps I had found some in this strange man dressed all in black. The snakestick man then approached us. Ketch stood up straight and put his son behind him. I unconsciously let my hand drop down toward the pistol I kept at my side. Despite my curiosity, the man made me nervous. Friends, the snakestick man purred, smiling again. No need to be afraid. I mean you no harm. As a matter of fact, I'm the bearer of good news. As the snakestick man spoke, he noticed that Catch's son was staring at his carved walking stick. Shall I make one for you, boy? The snakestick man asked. The child nodded vigorously, and the snakestick man picked a suitable piece of wood up from the ground, sat down beside the road, and began carving with the knife he kept in his belt. As I said, I have good news. The snakestick man whittled with remarkable skill and speed as he spoke to me and my Cherokee friend. Horace Kephart and Ketch, is it? We three are going on a raid into the Sugarlands after Buck Ruff, tonight. Ketch recoiled at the sound of his nickname. How do you know who we are, he demanded. The snakestick man smiled that charming smile again. No need to worry. I am a United States Marshal and I have been sent by an exasperated United States government to track down and apprehend Buck Ruff and bring him to justice. But I cannot do it alone, and am in need of deputies. So I will be deputizing you too. We head out tonight. 
I was quite taken aback and could not find my words, but Ketch had no such problem. He spit and shook his head. Why would we go anywhere with you? Again, the snake stick man smiled. He had finished carving the stick and handed it to Ketch's son, who took a hold of it with a kind of reverence only a small child is capable of. I have done my research, boys, the snake stick man continued, and here is the situation. I cannot trust these local fellows. They are moonshiners to a man. and will not give up the location of Rough willingly and may even offer me help only to lure me into the Sugarlands to dispatch me there. But you two are outsiders. You, Kephart, are a stranger here doing his best to fit in as you struggle to make ends meet. Your publisher is getting frustrated with you, is he not? It was true. I financed my freewheeling mountain lifestyle by writing articles for hunting magazines and the occasional book on mountain men and their ways. But lately I had little luck with my prose and my wallet was not only empty, it was inside out. I was incurring debts in order to procure the bare necessities of life. In short, I needed a story to write, and I needed it now. Well, the snake stick man continued, a manhunt into the wilderness should give your publisher exactly what they want. And you catch. The snake stick man turned to face my friend. You need the $500 bail money back, don't you? Since returning from the war, Ketch had made his living as a bondsman and bounty hunter. He had posted bond for Buck Ruff and lost a considerable sum when the man had escaped. It was a crippling financial blow he and his family had not recovered from. I know Ketch needed the money. His frayed coat and his son's threadbare clothing were a physical reminder of the existential threat poverty posed to all of the people living in the mountains. The snake-stick man stood, looked over us again, and leaned against his serpentine walking stick. Say nothing now. I will be at the edge of town tonight, after sundown, where the two roads cross. If you are there, I will know you aim to help me in my mission and that I have made two new friends. If not, then I know you plan to not aid, but perhaps to interfere with my investigation, and that I have possibly made two new enemies in this wilderness. I sincerely hope that is not the case. See you tonight. The snake-stick man moved to leave us, then stopped and turned around. Oh, and I trust you can provide your own horses. There are no roads where we are going. Chapter 2, A Raid into the Sugarlands A cool breeze cut the humid Indian summer air that night alarming the chirping crickets and promising a change in the weather. I saw an old woman relaxing on her front porch, watching the road out of town. She sat in a handmade bentwood rocker and moved slowly back and forth in the dark, her craggy face barely visible, illuminated by an orange glow each time she took a puff off her corncob pipe. She spoke to me as I rode past her, mounted on a borrowed horse. Coming up a storm this night, horse. You headed into the Sugarlands? I nodded. Yes, I was headed into the Sugarlands. Watch you for trouble, she warned. I do not think she was speaking about the weather. I found Catch a foot just outside of town, leaning against his good jack mule, saddle laying on the ground beside him. He was smoking a hand-rolled cigarette. Catch hardly ever smoked anymore, only when he was greatly troubled, and I had seldom seen him so distressed. 
The Great War had evened him out, taken off the edges. After the horror of the trenches and the bayonet that scarred his hands, it took quite a lot to rattle him. As a matter of fact, I'd only one other time seen the man with a cigarette in his mouth, and that had been the night, perhaps a year ago, that his wife miscarried their second child. He still had her blood on his hands when I saw him strike a match. He had been so unsteady that night I had to light his tobacco for him. Well, I offered, perched in my saddle. I've heard it's easier on the legs during a long journey to ride one's mule than to walk in front of it, carrying the saddle yourself. Catch took one last deep pull off his cigarette, then tossed it away. Don't plan to mount up unless I decide to go with you and the snake stick man, and I have not yet made up my mind, he grunted. I shook my head at the sound of the owl's hoot. A bad omen, that, I said. Catch looked up at me. He was angry. To hell with omens, Horace. You think I'm a superstitious man? Why? Because I am Cherokee? Because of the mountains where I was born? No, Catch, I said. I think I am a superstitious man. And these mountain people have done little to dissuade me of the notion. Forgive me. I did not mean to insult you. Catch rolled his shoulders, patted his mule, and seemed to settle a bit. I don't like it, he said. This marshal makes me nervous. Is it the magic that bothers you, I asked? Catch just shook his head no. There is no such thing as magic, Kephart. Only tricks. And I have trouble trusting a man who lacks so much to play tricks. Then stay home, Catch. Stay with your family and I'll go alone with them. The snake stick man was right when he spoke to me today. I need to sell a story or my time in the wilderness will come to a close. At these words, my friend Catch began to look upset again. He rolled another cigarette and lit it. Bullshit, Horace, he spat. You could use the money, but you don't need it. You're as capable a mountaineer as any white man I ever met. If you want to stay in these mountains, you'll stay. There's enough game to keep you a hundred winters and enough land to hide out in for ten lifetimes. Or you could just stay with me and my family. You know you are always welcome. It isn't for a want of money that you are out here, a horseback in the dark. Ketch took a long draw off his cigarette and pointed at me, his dark eyes piercing the night. You want to go. I watched Ketch smoke and thought about what he had just said to me. It was true. I did want to go. I could not say why, but there was something drawing me to this snake stick man, something pulling me out into the deep wilderness, onto this manhunt and I could not for the life of me say what it was. True, I needed money, but Catch was right. I could do without it. What I could not do was walk away from the chance to learn more about the man who could shoot like a god and raise snakes from the dead. Stay, Catch. Stay with your wife and son, I said. But even as I spoke, Catch was swinging his saddle up onto the jack mule's back and tightening the cinch. He flicked his second cigarette away, gathered his reins and stepped up into the saddle. You may be able to live without money, Kephart, Ketch grumbled, but I can't. If I don't get that 500 back, I am damn sure my wife will leave me. She'll put up with a lot, but not poverty. I need that bail money returned, and I won't lose my family because I am afraid to ride into the mountains with some dark stranger. We found the snake stick man right where he said he would be, 
waiting at the crossroads in the dark, mounted on a bright white mare. He was smiling that great, charming smile of his. Good, good, he said as we approached. When this is done, justice will be served upon the rough family. Your future secured, Kephart, and your bail money returned you, Ketch. I hope you boys brought coats. I believe the weather is about to turn. And with that, the snake-stick man turned his white mare and rode off into the darkness with us in tow. We ride through the night, boys, and we'll stop for provisions in the valley first thing tomorrow. But we did not make a full night's ride. Only an hour or so later, we found ourselves pinned down by a raging thunderstorm and took refuge in a small mountainside cave, leaving the horses loose under a grove of trees. I was counting the time between lightning strikes and the thunder they caused, hoping in vain to discover that the storm was moving away from us as Cat struggled to roll a cigarette out of very damp makings. And that's when we heard it. You have wolves yet alive in this part of the country? The snake stick man asked us, apparently genuinely surprised. Catch ignored the question and only opened his mouth to curse his soaking wet tobacco, leaving me to answer. I shook my head. No, I told the snake stick man. The last one was shot dead in 1887. The snake stick man smiled. Not as charming a smile this time. And what was that? I found that I had no good answer for the man. We spent a sleepless night huddled in our cave and ventured out with the sun the next morning, eyes bloodshot from exhaustion and ears ringing from thunderclaps. It was cold, the storm having chased off the unseasonably warm temperatures, but we were so glad the rain was over we did not care about the chill. Our relief was short-lived, however. Ketch saw them first, I second. The two horses and Ketch's one good mule lay dead on the ground, their throats torn out and stomachs laid open. My God, I gasped. What could have done this? Ketch whistled and pointed at the ground. Here, Kephart, he said, on the ground, headed away from us. My eyes followed Ketch's hand and I saw them, the tracks of a huge animal, some sort of canine, I was sure, circling the dead equids and then heading away over the mountain and toward the valley. That's not the worst of it, boys, I heard the snake stick man say. He had doubled back the way we rode in and was pointing at a set of the same tracks that came up the mountain trail behind us. Christ, Ketch muttered under his breath as he rolled a cigarette. It was following us. Whatever did this, it was behind us all night. Catch's conclusion made the snake-stick man smile again. Yes, boys. It appears the hunters may have become the hunted. What does that mean, I asked. Catch would have asked the same question, but he was too angry to speak. The snake-stick man leaned against his staff and cocked his head. I'll tell you on the way, he said. On the way where, Catch demanded, finally finding his voice. We'll walk over the mountain and into the valley, boys the snake-stick man commanded, and on the way I'll tell you what I should have told you before we left. There is more to Buck Ruff's story than I have led you to believe. And with that, the snake-stick man started walking. Catch looked around at the destruction laying on the ground, decided he did not want to be alone in the woods with whatever had done this to our horses, and followed after the tall, dark stranger. I assessed the situation. 
came to the same conclusion as Ketch and followed after the two men. What, I demanded, have you neglected to tell us? The snake stick man looked over his shoulder at me. Have you ever heard of the black dog of the South Mountain? The wolf man of Appalachia? I declined to answer. Well, said the snake stick man, now not only have you heard of the wolf man of Appalachia, the beast has killed your borrowed gelding, my white mare, and catches good jack mule. And at this point I believe it intends to kill us as well. The three of us walked forward in silence, the snake stick man taking the lead. Ketch and I fell back a few paces and marched shoulder to shoulder, eyes scouring the forest around us. No need to worry now, the snake stick man said, sensing our anxiety. The black dog only appears in the night. We are in no danger until the sun sets. Ketch looked my way. I don't know what worries me more, he whispered. Whatever it was that stalked us through the storm and killed our horses, or... Or what, I asked him, already knowing the answer. Or him. Ketch breathed as he took a drag off his cigarette and nodded toward the marshal, the snake-stick man, who was making his way through this primeval wilderness with disturbing confidence. I too felt afraid, but for some reason that I still cannot explain, was totally unable to suggest the most obvious course of action, that we part ways with the marshal and head home. For every time the thought crossed my mind, the carved wooden eyes of the serpent atop the snake-stick man's staff caught mine, and I dismissed retreat completely. Next time on Moonshine Land. My breath caught in my throat. We need to get out of here, I said, my voice more panicked than I cared to admit. Not out, the bookseller murmured. We cannot go out. Ketch and I tried in vain to hold our breath as we stared at the dead animals strewn about the trees. They are outlaws, the snake stick man breathed in response to Catch's question. All of them? I croaked as I surveyed the mob of angry woodsmen. Yes, the snake stick man affirmed. Every single one, apparently. <laughs> <laughs>